Lord God, that is indeed our prayer this morning. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. God, we understand that we need to be led. The allures of the world are are ever-present, God, and yet we desire more than anything. We proclaim that we desire more than anything to follow you this morning. God, we love you and we love your word. God, we thank you for it, that it stands before us this morning and is sufficient. God, we praise you that it is. It is complete. God, we praise you that we can go to it and glean truth. God, and that it is profitable. God, and that it brings us to maturity. God, may our hearts now this morning be inclined towards you even as we continue our time in 1 Corinthians and think a little bit about the triumphal entry, as you entered into Jerusalem, Jesus, knowing that just a few days later, you would die for the sins of the world. God, we are going to a difficult text this morning, and yet we understand, we know that you have given it to us in your word for a purpose and for a reason. Lord God, and as we continue our time and considering what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, may our hearts be stirred to live lives that are honoring to you. And so we thank you for your word. May we feast upon it this morning. God, and may we love you more than we did when we walked through the front door. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Children uh, ages kindergarten through third grade can meet up in the back. You'll walk down together right now. Any other kids are free to go as well. Uh, the infant, toddler, uh, all the way up through, through kindergarten. Remember, parents of older kids in that older classroom, you're, we would like you to go downstairs and grab your kids uh, after the service as well and sign them out. Uh, just as a matter of security as we're continuing to feel the space out and get acclimated here, uh, it's important that we are all in one accord on that. And, uh, and as again, just as a reminder, this afternoon um, we do have a BCC Kids Volunteer Meeting at 2 o'clock. I'll, I'll say that in the announcements as well at the end. Well, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're taking on a text this morning that is... Not the easiest thing we've come across in our time together in 1 Corinthians and maybe even in our time together as a, as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Let me read this for us and then we'll dive in. Uh, why are we sticking here? That might be the question. Why are we sticking here on Palm Sunday? Uh, you'll, you'll get a gist of it even before we start to, to read it. Uh, one of my goals this morning is to kind of tie this together with Palm Sunday because I think there's a real practical application that exists between 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 16 and, and the triumphal entry, what Jesus was prefiguring when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey just days before his crucifixion. Let me read the text and then we'll, we'll dive in. We'll begin to unpack some of the ideas and concepts here that, that uh, Paul lays out for the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Corinth, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand 
that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is, a disgrace, it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now immediately, this is difficult. (laughs) This is a text that we come to and we look at it and we say, okay, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, but we've really made an effort now to spend time together in the three and a half years of Buffalo City Church to say, we're going to go through, we're not going to skip over hard things just when they come in in a book like 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm going to posit to you this morning that, that the, the heading that your, your, your translators have given you is largely unhelpful. You probably have a heading, if you're reading the ESV like I am, a heading right before verse 2 that says head coverings. Well, that's not, that's not entirely helpful because it's not really a culturally, uh, uh, it's sort of a culturally irrelevant uh, argument here. And let me, I'm going to unpack that for us in a minute. So I'm going to ask for you to really track with me this morning because there's going to be some ideas and concepts that we begin to explore this morning that are going to be a little bit more difficult just conceptually than maybe some of the things that we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians. So why are we sticking here for Palm Sunday? Let me make that connection first, and we'll circle all the way back around to that at the end of our time together. We're sticking here this morning because this text is largely what it means to be human. That's what this text is about. What does it mean to be human? Now, in order to get a clear picture of what it means to be human, we have to go all the way back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created man and woman. Male and female, he created them. It says in Genesis 1.27. We're going to quote that a few times and begin to unpack that a little bit. Now, this is a culturally contentious idea. Paul even says it right at the end of, his, end, of his, uh, end, of, end of this section of text. This is not something for the church in Corinth that was easy, and it's not something that's easy for us. In fact, it's dramatically difficult. So we're sticking here for Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday... When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is prefiguring when he will return for a second time and restore humanity to its original state. Restore humanity back to what was intended when he created man and woman in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
So there's a restoration component that exists. And when we start to talk about the relationship between man and woman from a biblical perspective, we begin to understand that we are living in a day and age and we are living in a culture that has largely rejected that Genesis 1 and 2 understanding. This is historically not something that is abnormal, however. Because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, because of the act of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and eating the fruit that God put before them and said, do not partake in this, we now have been thrown into chaos as humanity, not just in 21st century America, but throughout all of human history post-Genesis 3, we've been thrown into chaos. And one of the main ways that we have been thrown in chaos into chaos is our understanding of sex, sexuality, and gender. We need to be restored back to what God originally intended for these things in a Genesis 1 and 2 sense. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he is showing us that he will come back and restore us back to the garden in the way that he intended things to be. So making that connection right out of the gate, and we'll circle back around to that because that's important. Now, we are on the tail end of this merger process, so I'm getting to know many of you here. Let me say this. My conscience is bound to the Word of God. That's why we're not going away from this text this morning. This is the most important thing that I can bring to you this morning because God put it here. Not because we want to come before you with cleverly devised myths, but because the Word of God says it clearly, concisely. Now, Again, I'm asking you to engage fully here because there is something here that needs to be unpacked. Oftentimes we look at this and we see the cultural expression that exists with the head coverings and the shaving of the head, long hair, and all these things. We think to ourselves, this is just irrelevant. We just move past it to chapter 12 or to the second half of 11 and talk about the Lord's Supper. Now, when we see issues surrounding, <laughs> surrounding this text, and especially what it means to be male and female, we immediately begin thinking about our own culture and the application of Paul's words and the rest of Scripture. But we need to begin applying a text like this to our situation, to our context. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. This inevitably lends itself to our preconceived biases, our upbringing, our political leanings, you name it. But we need to set those things aside We need to see what Paul says here and understand very clearly the context to which Paul is writing this letter and how issues of maleness and femaleness and roles in marriage in the church were being thought about in Corinth. Our setting is much different in this respect from Corinth. And yet principles remain the same. And so when we're reading 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, it is unhelpful to discard it because the practices doesn't, don't fit our context. We must mine the text like we try and do every week. We must mine the text, dig deeply into it, and find the principles buried here. If Paul says, if what Paul says is true in 2 Timothy verses three, or chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. If that is true, if what Paul writes there is true, then we need this text also. And we need to be equipped, 
just like the Corinthians, for every good work. And that means more than ever in our culture, what the Bible says about our biological sex, our gender, and our roles that men and women have in marriage and in the church need to be understood and expressed by all of us. And as a note, in in my estimation, the church, us, the church-going population, has done a very poor job of having this conversation. We've done a pretty bad job of having this conversation. I mean, I just mean that all of us. Our conversations have reflected political rhetoric more than they have represented biblical understandings of these things. I'm saddened oftentimes when I hear Christian circles talking about these issues, especially of maleness and femaleness, and trying to engage a culture that has gone dramatically off the rails in these ideas. I'm saddened when I hear Christian circles employ endless logical and rhetorical fallacies. These exist in the world. God set these up. God set up sound logic, and Paul employs it here. We say slippery slope arguments and red herrings and moral equivalency and ad hominem and non sequiturs over and over again. We're going to unpack all of those. But what I will say is if you're not seeking God through his word on these issues, you will become part of the noisy, muddied conversation and not a clear witness to what the truth of the one who created both male and female says. Now again, the idea of gender as a social construct and biological sex as a, as a negotiable item. These things have grown significantly in our culture over the past decade. These issues can be found in headlines and have been the topic of debate in all areas of society, even Christian circles now, for a long time. But in our text this morning, in this text this morning, Paul affirms before the Corinthians that there are two genders, male and female. Both are equally made in God's image and both have complementing roles to one another. How men and women relate to one another in marriage and in the church sends a profound message about what we believe to be true about God and Jesus Christ. So, Let's consider the text that stands before us this morning and some things that we need to know uh, leading into this text. Again, this is not easy. This is difficult, and I acknowledge that before you this morning. But let's try to be true to what Paul is writing here under the inspiration of his Spirit. So I'm going to give you two ideas from what Paul says here. Unpack these from a biblical perspective Those are going to govern the most of our time. Then we'll step back into that Palm Sunday connection, that restoration idea. So, the two items that we're going to talk about, creation order and cultural expression. The final thing we'll touch on is Christ the King as he rides into Jerusalem. We'll take these in turn. So, let's begin by thinking about creation order. Typically, when Paul starts talking about these issues in, in, in 1 Corinthians, and we see this in 1 Timothy as well, typically when Paul addresses these issues of maleness and femaleness, he is, he is approaching it from a creation order perspective. Man created first, woman was created second. And this is seen clearly in verse 3 of our text. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then if you bounce down the page to verse 8, 
For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So we see made, created, order, important for Paul. However, Paul recognizes that even though man was created first, then women, men are born from women. And then he makes the summary statement and he says in verse 12, and all things are from God. So, Before we go any farther here, we need to begin to understand what we believe about maleness and femaleness. What do we believe about maleness and femaleness? I'm going to give you four things here that come up time and time again related to these ideas in the New Testament and in Scripture in general. First, first thing, important, God created male and female. Genesis 1.27, quoted it earlier. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is an idea that has become hotly contested in our culture. For many people, again, gender has become a social construct. And sex, then, has become biologically negotiable leading to the significant acceleration in a, in a transgender, or as those who would identify as a transgender. But from a biblical perspective, biology and identity are inseparable. These two things are inseparable. We are holistic creatures, not designed to be parsed out, but to be taken in our entirety as image bearers. So God, first thing we believe, God created male and female both in biology and in identity. The second thing then, we see this in that Genesis 1.27 verse, God created male and female equally in his image. Both men and women bear the image of God. Male and female, both image bearers. It is therefore drastically unbiblical for men to exercise an air of superiority or to be domineering. When we see instances of this in Scripture, we must understand that that is not the norm, but that is, in fact, what, not what God intended, but comes as a result of sin that entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. But Genesis 1 comes before Genesis chapter 3. So God created male and female equally in his image. In his book, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, where he seeks to address the evangelical feminism movement from a biblical perspective, Wayne Grudem writes, the Bible corrects the errors of male dominance and male superiority that have come as a result of sin and that have been seen in nearly all cultures in the history of the world. Wherever men are thought to be better than women, wherever husbands act as selfish dictators, wherever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home or to vote or to own property or to be educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is violence against women, the biblical truth of the quality and the image of God is being denied. To all societies and cultures where these things occur, we must proclaim that the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. God created male and female equally in his image. The third thing then that we affirm is that men and women have distinct roles in marriage and then in the church. 
Men and women have distinct roles in marriage and then in the church. This is what we call, here's a word for you, this is what we call complementarianism. Complementarianism. Male and female roles are designed to complement one another. Not complement with an I, but complement with an E. Not like, hey, you look great today, but complement, offset one another. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is the task assigned to Adam. He is given a particular role. But then in Genesis 2.18, then the Lord took the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so God created a woman to assist, support, help, provide companionship. She is given a particular role. Now it's important to see that these two things don't stand against one another and do not have anything to do or mar the equality in the bearing of the image of God. In fact, both are designed for human flourishing. Both are designed for human flourishing and grant us a deep and profound understanding of what it means to be human. Both men and women are able to flourish equally as a result of living according to that which God has assigned for them. Our culture has drawn a false conclusion that you cannot be equal if you don't do the same things. However, that is not correct. Ontological equality does not demand similarity in tasks. That's a word that ontology the essence or the nature of existence or being. Both male and female exist equally bearing God's image, although they have been assigned different tasks. So we affirm this concept outside the conversation of male and female. Human worth and dignity is not determined by doing. Our society says this all the time. We do not ascribe or or assign dignity or worth to someone based on their doing. A CEO of a Fortune 500 company, a stay-at-home mom, and a garbage man all have the same level of dignity and worth in the eyes of God. Men and women, therefore, have distinct roles in marriage and in the church. This is, again, what we call complementarianism. Men and women have roles that complement one another. This is God's design in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Fourthly, this is the one where we start to, if, if, if any of this is easy to swallow, this is where it becomes more difficult to swallow. Creation order, from the way that Paul is arguing here and into verse 3, which stands as the fulcrum of our text this morning, creation order indicates male headship in marriage. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. When Paul says the head of a wife is her husband, what does that phrase mean? This means that husbands have authority over their wives. Now, let me unpack that because you're going to think to yourself, that, that word is a bad word in our culture, authority. Yeah, that, was, I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't meant to be a joke. But, but there has never been a, a generation 
in recent history that has been more skeptical of authority than my generation. Just, I mean, there's just data that suggests that. There has never been a, a generation in recent memory that has been more skeptical of authority than my generation. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Have you been in a wedding recently? Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 spells it out clearly for us. Wives, submit to your husbands, husbands, or submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wow, a lot of dirty words in there. Paul goes on to outline the role of husband in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men throughout history have conveniently ignored 25 through 33 and often cited 22 through 24. That is a convenient omission and one that cannot be the case for us. Men and women must see that they have been assigned a task by God given to them specifically based on how God created them. And neither is meant to domineer or to come up with an air of superiority. This interplay between husbands and wives is not a domineering posture, but a loving reflection of Christ and the church. A self-sacrificial, self-denying love that nourishes and cherishes his bride equally to his own flesh. And this is really where we begin to have an intersection with our text. So we have these four ideas. God created male and female. God created male and female equally in his image. God gave male and female complementing roles or tasks. And then male headship is seen in marriage according to creation order. And so in order for us to begin to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we need to be well versed in those ideas. Because if those ideas are not true, then let's toss this text aside. That's how Paul argues here. And that leads us then to our second point. This is cultural expression. So if we affirm this, if we affirm that those four things are true, we need to consider and look at what can be gleaned from Paul's arguments 
what we believe should find outward expression. What we believe about maleness and femaleness should find outward expression. What does that look like for us in our context? For the Corinthians, it was shameful for men to, who prayed or prophesied in church to have their heads covered. And it was shameful for women who prayed or prophesied in church to have their heads uncovered. Why? Because it did not adequately portray what Paul says in verse 3. And it would have been a barrier or a stumbling block to some believing the gospel. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. The same goes for the length of hair as we get towards the end of the text. These things are not shameful in our culture and do not oftentimes find a connection point with what we believe about maleness and femaleness. Long hair, head coverings, those sorts of things. So the question is, what about us? It needs to be stated that this text is not about head coverings, that heading in your Bible does you a disservice. It's not about head coverings. We should not advocate for a culturally irrelevant expression. Just as we shouldn't disregard the text because it doesn't seem to apply at the surface. So the question is, how do we maintain the Genesis 1 and 2 God-given roles and distinctions between male and female in our culture? In a culture that has largely rejected those distinctions, how do we as the local church maintain Genesis 1 and 2 God-given roles and distinctions between male and female? How will our understanding of maleness and femaleness be expressed in the culture at large? How will the understanding of maleness and femaleness be expressed right now in 2019 in Jamestown, North Dakota? Let me give you three thoughts. Three thoughts. These are primarily conceptual because outward appearance doesn't seem to have that much bearing. These are primarily conceptual. First thing I would say, reject notions of inequality between men and women. Taken right from that second point. Reject notions of inequality between men and women. Men, don't be chauvinists. Value women. Honor them. Interact with women in God-honoring ways. Do nothing or say nothing that would be interpreted as impropriety. Men who act entitled, who believe that they can look at, say, or act towards a woman in any way they see fit, need to be checked. I've often heard in defensive man who has acted in such a way that he's just old-fashioned. We live in a me-too world. Christians must realize the world that we live in, acknowledge its contours, and not turn a blind eye to it. We need to be advocates for pay equality and equality for opportunities, for equal opportunities for men and women in the workplace. We need to stand up against domestic violence. We must be committed to human flourishing both for men and for women. So first, how can we uh, portray our understanding of maleness and femaleness right now in 2019 in Jamestown, North Dakota is reject notions of inequality between men and women. We both bear the image of God. Secondly, we should seek to 
properly work out the differences in our roles as men and women. Biblically, men are to provide for, protect, and lead their wives and families. Biblically, women are to respect their husbands and serve as helper. This does not always mean a dramatic shift in our day-to-day life. So if you're thinking to yourself, I've got to change everything about my day-to-day, don't. Rather, ask what does the rhythm of our life look like and how can I be fulfilling my role as husband or wife, as a man or a woman in the place God has put me right now. Men, are you providing and protecting and leading? Sure I am, you say. Have you considered not just the physical? Are you connecting with your wife emotionally? Are you providing for emotional needs? Are you protecting her heart? What, what about her spiritual needs? And what about your kids? Sure, they have food on the table and a roof over their heads, but they know how you're, do you know how they're feeling? or struggling to believe as they read their Bible. They may not be starving physically, but are they starving spiritually? Women, are you respecting your husbands and serving as helper? Sure I am, you say. Yes. There are many highly intelligent, high-functioning women in our church. It is clearly seen by your children in your social circles that you respect your husband or do you find yourself grumbling about him regularly? Are you willing to be led by him or does he need to do this or that a little bit better to earn the right? Thirdly, become aware of threats against the biblical understanding of maleness and femaleness and learn how to speak about them. Become aware of threats against biblical understanding of maleness and femaleness and learn to speak about them. This leads us back to the top of our time together where we oftentimes engage in politically unhelpful or alienating conversation regarding this topic. This is especially true about a highly conservative, middle-of-the-country context like ours. We need to understand the biblical contours of this argument and begin applying them to our situation. Currently serving on a committee of pastors and denominational leaders across the nation. We're helping to uh, brainstorm how to better resource churches in the area of sex, sexuality, and gender for an organization called Harvest USA. And in our first meeting, a relatively young pastor, he maybe uh, early 40s, late 30s, he is a, he's a pastor of an evangelical church in Delaware, a church of about 1,000 people. He shared some results of a poll their ch- church took of high schoolers and middle schoolers. They asked about issues of sex, gender, same-sex attractedness, transgender issues, etc. And an alarming number of children responded with, culturally influenced answers, not biblically informed ones. These are kids who grew up in the church and who have been part of Christian families for a long time, for their entire life. So why did the kids answer the way they did? And upon further investigation, this pastor shared the kids swayed by culture who were rejecting biblical model of sex and gender. One, spent an incredibly Uh, or spent significantly more time around their peers than they did their parents or others in the older generation. 
two were constantly connected to their peers, even when they were with their parents through cell phones or tablets. And three, did not feel safe to ask questions about sex, sexuality, and gender in the home or felt like their parents lacked authority to answer those questions. And so the result of all of this, and as a result of dramatic age segregation in our culture, your kids go to school and they're put in a classroom with a bunch of peers who are born the same calendar year as them. And they're around those kids more than anyone else in their, during their day. So as a result of this dramatic age segregation in our culture and our churches, peers are raising peers. And this was clearly seen in this church in Delaware. The pastor said, the parents came to him and asked him, what is this church teaching our kids? And he said, what are you not teaching them? Now, there's a lot more to say about this, but we as a church must consider that we have 40 to 50 kids downstairs week to week. And many of them are not yet in the stage where any of these things begin to be issues or have begun yet to be issues. But they will soon. Parents, fair warning, as our kids grow up, our plan is not to continue as a church, our plan is not to continue to segregate ages, but introduce our kids into the midst, this midst, more and more. A day is coming where every one of your kids, it's not coming, where every one of your kids, K through 12, get dropped out of the classroom 10 minutes to 10. If you want to hear more about the vision and the future of Buffalo City Church, kids, classroom expansions, etc., come to the meeting this afternoon, shameless plug. The bottom line is this. We want to worship together as families as much as possible. We want your kids, as much as they are able, to participate in community group. Why? Because you are called to be the primary discipler of your child. If you're a parent, you're called to be the primary discipler of your child. Part of discipleship as a parent is showing your kids how to engage certain settings and have conversations cross-generationally. You say, I'm going to introduce my kid into this space, but they don't understand the sermon. That's okay. Ask them what they did hear. Ask them if they have questions. Tell them what you learned or were challenged by. Ask them what they observed or just what they thought about Sunday morning in general. Congregational worship, what we're doing right now isn't just about information transfer. It's about being together. Formation can happen whether you understand the content of the sermon or not. Just look at how your kids, parents, mimic your mannerisms. Did you tell them to do that? No, they were formed by observation and by time spent together. Julie Lowe, a counselor with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, in a lecture she gave called Building Bridges with Your Children, says, by and large, parents have less influence over the lives of their children than media, culture, and their peer relationships do. Friends, as a church, we must alter this reality. If that's true, how can we as a church alter this reality? First, to recognize that the church is here to equip you to raise your kids and not raise your kids for you. And then realize that we must, one, approach what the Bible has to say about difficult topics like the one at hand, not ignore it, not brush past it. Two, prepare to engage in our children with these difficult topics. And three, not allow our children's peers to be their primary influencers. And then I give you a fourth, to introduce them into cross-generational conversation and interaction. 
what we believe about our maleness and femaleness should find outward expression. How can I, what I believe be apparent to the world around me? How can we faithfully live according to what the Bible outlines for us about what it means to be human, about what it means to be male, about what it means to be female, about what it means to be created in the image of God? So finally then, this morning, all of this in light of Christ the King. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and the crowd shouted, Hosanna, save us. Little did they know that just a few short days, the one they rejoiced over would hang in the air on a cross brutally murdered. But even as Jesus hung on that cross, the beginning of restoration was merely hours away. Genesis 3, when the serpent deceives Adam and Eve into violating God's directive and ate the fruit, the understanding of maleness and femaleness was thrown into chaos. The task of exercising dominion over creation for Adam became much more difficult. Thorns and thistles. The ground became hard to work. The task of helping and supporting her husband became radically more difficult for Eve. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem to to a crowd that had political restoration in mind. We can learn something from this. They had political restoration in mind from political and religious oppression, from Roman occupation and oversight. But Jesus knew that his ride into Jerusalem was nothing, nothing compared to the chaos-ending restoration that his second coming was going to bring about. And the Apostle John writes it in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look, Jesus is making all things new. This is what Palm Sunday indicates to us. Jesus, the Lord of our maleness and femaleness. Jesus, the perfect example of what it means to be human. He is making all things new. We don't need political or religious restoration to occur. We need restoration to occur in our very being, in our very understanding of what it means to be human, created in the image of God. Created male and female. The chaos we see in our world now surrounding these issues. The same chaos that Paul was writing about in 
1 Corinthians chapter 11 is being restored and will be restored at the second coming of Christ. However, in the meantime, and as citizens of the kingdom that has not yet fully arrived, we fight to display what maleness and femaleness looks like in the kingdom of God. Men and women equally bearing God's image, husbands and wives living into their God-given roles. This is the restoration that Christ the King prefigured when he rode into Jerusalem. This is the restoration that Christ the King will bring about. Back to the garden. Back to the words in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. Again, this is a a radically difficult topic to approach in 2019. In the culture where we live. There are no doubt questions in your mind. There are no doubt thoughts that you've had throughout this. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I want to assure you, God is making all things new. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Part of being a Christian, part of being created in God's image, is being renewed in your mind. I want to invite you, if you have any questions or concerns or comments, you know my door is open. For many of you who have been with us for a short amount of time, we just dumped a lot of stuff on you this morning. But the reality is, this is a conversation that the church needs to be having. If you're tempted to go away from here and just, and just vent to your spouse in the vehicle or find someone else to, to talk through this with, I invite you not to do this. Our church can benefit from, a, from an open, ongoing conversation about what it means to be human. We can benefit from not bottling these things up but from expressing them in a healthy way. So if you have any questions or concerns, I want to invite you. My door is open. My phone is on. Give me a call. We're not going to shy away from these topics. We're going to take them head on and approach them from a biblical perspective. Let me pray for us. But before I do, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people. If you're here this morning and you have no idea what that means, if you have no idea what Jesus came to accomplish, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be right up front. Come talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life that we could not deserve, fully portraying what it means to be human and died a death that he did not deserve in our place so that we might be restored to right relationship with God. If none of that makes any sense to you, come talk to me. Let's have a conversation about it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. God, may we not shy away from it at any moment, God, but may it become the governing force in our life, in our day-to-day. God, we praise you for who you are. God, it is intensely, intensely and hotly contested in our, our, our culture, issues of maleness and femaleness. May we understand the contours of our society and apply the gospel openly, and without, without barrier. God, may our lives be a reflection of who you are. May our lives express what it is to be human. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.